Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So the title of this talk is The Third Precept. Trauma. Is this kind of loud? Is it? No? It's okay. Trauma, uh, respect, and cultural wake up. And for those um, who um, aren't familiar with the precept, um, I, I mentioned it just before the break here, but a um, number of people listen online. Uh, all these talks are online, by the way. You can uh, They're posted up on Dharma Seed, um, dharmaseed.org, um, within a couple of days, thanks to Jaime Levine, great audio man. For those who um, aren't familiar with the third precept, um, the traditional or one traditional uh, definition third out of five precepts in uh, these teachings is, uh, I undertake the training precept to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. <clears throat> Here's a couple of other um, translations or definitions. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh, great Vietnamese uh, meditation master, activist, Uh, poet, environmentalist. Sexual expression should not take place without love and commitment, he says. Be fully aware of the sufferings you may cause others as a result of your misconduct. To preserve the happiness of yourself and others, respect the rights and commitments of others. Here's um, a definition from a Manzanita village, a, um, a Dharma center down in Southern California. Katrina Reed is the uh, main teacher there. Aware of abuse and lovelessness in the world and of the healing that is made possible when we open to love I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations, and vow to cultivate respect for the beauty and erotic power of our bodies. I'll share one more, the one that uh, I wrote in um, Awakening Joy, a book I wrote. Take care with sexual energy, respecting boundaries, and offering safety. And the the common principle behind all five of the Buddhist precepts um, about not killing, not stealing, this sexuality, not causing harm through our speech, 
um, and communication and not causing harm through uh, abuse of substances. The common principle is a shift in perspective from what's in it for me to what can I offer another? So there's a, a feeling of, of kindness and friendliness and respect and non-harm. That's the, the basic common denominator, non-harm. <clears throat> and I decided to talk about this topic uh, as you probably... Uh, can understand uh, this is um, a very critical moment in our country and in the world because it's not just what's happening here in our country, although eyes all around the world have been on our country this week. I know I've, I've spoken to uh, to people in Australia and in Europe and um, um, around. Um, what we've been focusing on this week with the um, judicial hearings and uh, Brett Kavanaugh's uh, nomination and uh, Christine, uh, Dr. Christine uh, Blasey Ford's testimony um, I was riveted, as probably many of you were. How many people watched some or all of the hearings? I mean, how often is it that you say, oh, I think I'll tune into some, uh, some s- what's going on in the Senate today? It was riveting. It was high drama. It was um, intense. It was emotional. It was very moving for me. Mm. It was very moving, and uh, I right away want to um, apologize for uh, if there's any anyone uh, listening online or here in the room who um, uh, might have a uh, your own perspective on things. But I I was so inspired by uh, Dr. Ford and the, the courage and the clarity and the um, standing in truth. There's a, a word that Gandhi coined, satyagraha, which is um, the truth force where you are so connected with the truth that it overrides your fear or your um, doubt, all the things that the mind can get in the way that say, oh no, can I do this? But there's such a connection with truth that it's holding you in the, in the act of just being protected by what you know is true. And for me, uh, it, was, it was so moving. You can, 
I could, I sensed the ring of truth. And even those who are, um, you know, wanting the, the, um, the nomination to go through, even, even the president saying, this person was credible. And since then, there's been, uh, as I'm sure you know, other statements from, from him and others. Uh, and uh, I, like probably many, um, have been feeling um, very sad and torn by uh, the, the backlash and uh, whether or not who is telling the truth, uh, one thing that as, um, what was it? As Kavanaugh said in his speech to Catholic University, his speech in 2015 uh, that he called the judge's umpire, um, quoting him, a judge must keep emotions in check have proper demeanor, and must not be, in his words, must not be a jerk. (laughs) Calm in the midst of a storm, and at all costs, not be a political partisan. He also said in that same speech to Catholic University, We always had a saying, what happens at Georgetown Prep stays at Georgetown Prep. So whatever you're um, feeling about, well, maybe they both have their own perspective of the truth. Um, This is about character, temperament. Is somebody able to be fair enough to hear all sides and having a calm uh, in the midst of a storm and proper demeanor. Um, And it's no surprise that uh, over a thousand law professors um, uh, came out in the last day or so saying that that he is unfit for the position and the National Council of Churches representing 38 denominations and 40 million people also um, have uh, objected to um, that nomination being approved. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was also so inspired, at least for a while, by um, Jeff Flake, somebody whose conscience uh, he couldn't ignore. And I'll, I'll get to that in a few moments um, because uh, there were some other very courageous, brave people that, uh, as you probably know, were able to pierce the conceptual mind and get to his heart. And I wanted to play a little bit about from one of those uh, amazing, brave women. So 
just a few words, and then we'll explore a bit more. Um, it's it was so painful um, for me, and probably for so many. Uh, why all the the sadness or the outrage? Um, it's because um, because there's a place in us that cares that cares about the truth that cares about integrity that wants justice this is play- i mean it's it's probably why else do you come to meditation if not probably one of the central aspects is there's something in you that loves the truth that loves being aligned with what is actually happening now that wants to see clearly, oh, what is life giving me in this moment? I think of the meditation practice as being connected to the truth and saying, this is the truth in this moment. Oh, now I'm breathing in and breathing out. Now here's sadness or joy or fear or love. Now here's a sound. Now here's um, a sensation and you're aligned with the truth in every moment, and as you become more and more connected to the truth in each moment, you become better and better at hearing the truth right inside. Hearing the truth, hearing the wisdom, hearing the love and the goodness that's right inside. We're here, I would propose, because we love the truth. But you don't have to be a a mindfulness meditator or a Buddhist meditator to love the truth. That's why we we watch Law and Order or all all the N. I've never seen NCIS, but uh, those kinds of shows because we are waiting and hoping that the truth will come out and justice will happen. And yes, goodness prevails. And you go to a movie and you're wondering, oh my goodness, are they going to get away with it? Are they going to, yes, they got caught, you know, and justice was served, hopefully with mercy, but uh, justice is served. We, we long for and need the truth. In, in God we trust, our country's motto, trust is really the essence of what democracy is based on <clears throat> and having uh, empathy when you see somebody so courageous and and brave and and uh, with acting with integrity and standing in that that force of truth the truth force it moves us and it inspires us and um, uh, en- ennobles us to be brave as well, because courage is contagious. And as we've been seeing in these last years, when people are starting to be brave enough to speak the truth and not keep things hidden, this whole movement in the last number of years, particularly since you know Harvey Weinstein, but really even before, but particularly our leader, who is uh, somebody who who seems to have a problem with the truth uh, and with um, 
how women are held has created a whole backlash of courageous people um, willing to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. So first I'll say uh, I uh, want to uh, state the truth that as a man, uh, my empathy can only go so far. It can't compare, I know, as much as I've been affected and moved, it can't compare to um, a woman's experience of what Dr. Ford has spoken to or what you know, 91% of the sexual assaults are uh, uh, towards women. But right now, the whole country and world is getting an education in a way that uh, we never have, at least culturally riveted in this drama. Mm. And so perhaps in one way to hold this era, this Trump era, is that in the long run, um, the wound, whatever happens in this this current situation, whatever happens, as the wound is, uh, healing comes when a wound is opened. And if it's hidden, or if there's a Band-Aid put on it, or if it's, if it's not, if it doesn't see the light of day and fresh air, um, then there can't be a healing. Mm. But I wanted to share with you a few, um, a, f- a couple of stories, and then have us um, look at the Dharma perspective on this. Uh, first, a couple of statistics. Um, we can hear statistics. Probably you know one in three women, it seems, have experienced some sexual um, assault or sexual violence. And one in five, this is in this country, let alone in many other countries, but one in five in this country, as the the last statistics um, uh, have have been raped. And that... um, of those, the one other statistic I'll mention is that 33% of those um, have contemplated suicide. So statistics um, are actually different from are different from actually seeing and hearing or having a contact, hearing somebody's story. You know, often they say, oh, well, it's just an anecdotal report. But it's the anecdotal reports that bring things to life and touch us. Otherwise, it's just statistics. Oh, that's so awful. But it doesn't touch us in the heart in the same way. And that's one reason why that testimony of Dr. Ford was so riveting. Probably many people were right there in the room with with her 35 years ago. And uh, as a man, I'll say, 
you know, it's one thing I can imagine men can experience, say, if a house is broken into, that's a violation. Or if you're mugged, a man can experience that, and that's a violation. But for your body to be assaulted, that's a violation that traumatizes for quite some time. And I wanted to share with you a little bit about my education in this. Uh, Two stories that really shifted things for me um, once I got into the uh, anecdotal report. Uh, Because growing up, you know, I'm a product of my own conditioning and have my own, you know, a lot of conditioning, uh, objectifying, and, you know, and, and being, a, uh, being a guy. And I, I've said here before, you know, when I think back in my 20s, you know, there's how unconscious I was. I, I, I never actually assaulted anyone. But in the objectifying in my mind, I'm just, I'm, uh, as I often say, if you're cringing from something, from the way you held things 30 years ago, it's actually a good sign. It means you're no longer that same person. You know, but I go, ooh, God, ooh. But I want to be honest and say, I have my own conditioning. And a number of years ago, about 15 years ago, maybe it was more now, I got my own wake-up call around this. And I'm, I'm going to share two stories. I got permission from both of these women to share their stories this week. I said, is it okay? And they both said, absolutely. You just, if it's useful. Um, one was a retreat. Um, I was teaching with another uh, with a woman teacher. And there was this um, woman uh, in her early 30s who was on the retreat who was very um, closed and shut in. And uh, something had happened to her, and she couldn't look at me. This is, and I, you know, I certainly don't want to go where I'm not welcome. And so I, you know, she had an interview with the the other teacher, uh, but I could feel her tension through the whole first, oh, three or four days of the retreat. And you could just feel the anxiety and the tension. After about four days of the retreat, I'm on my way to give the talk, or to actually to prepare for my talk. And I was walking across the, the field, and um, this woman comes up to me and says, I have to talk to you. And I thought, okay, I'm just about to figure out what I'm going to say tonight. But here's this person who's not been able to look me in the eye for the last four days. Whatever comes out, comes out. I said, okay, let's talk. And she told me the story She said, I have to speak to you because you're the first man I I feel like I might be able to trust in the last 17 years. That got my attention. And she proceeded to share her story that at the age of 15, she um, 
was at a, it was at a New Year's Eve party, and she got drunk, and um, was uh, driving. Uh, and uh, this guy drove was drive, drove her home, and he raped her in the car. And um, and she was completely traumatized, and he um, he left her out on the side of the road. And somehow she made it home. And when she got home, her father saw her in disarray. Her father, who she was very close with, and um, and called her a slut and said that he didn't hear the story, but that she brought on whatever happened to herself. And that was what really pushed her over. And then for the next, this is at the age of 15, as I recall, uh, and uh, for the next 17 years, she got into drugs, abusive relation, a number of abusive relationships, and her life just went down. She, she no longer was connected to her father, and her life just went down the hole. And she said, coming here was like, I had, it, this is like my last resort, and I had to try this. And you're the first man that I feel maybe I can trust. And, um, and it's so helpful that you can listen to me and hear me. Now, I was so grateful that I was somehow able to be safe enough for her to do that. But what it did for me in hearing that story, and I've told her many times since, I said, I'm glad I was helpful for you and you have no idea how helpful you've been for me. Because in that moment, I was going through her trauma and her terror and I felt, oh my goodness, the most important thing that somebody who's been traumatized can feel is that there's some safety from a man instead of objectifying. And it really, I mean, I'd always wanting, wanted to be as safe and considerate as possible with everyone, you know, the refuges are so key in in this teaching, in these practices. But the idea that somehow we can be a safe haven for another and that it can be instrumental in their healing um, uplifted a whole in a whole other way the responsibility for me being in my role. And besides that, seeing that maybe I can communicate to men who, like me, go through their own conditioning, what a wonderful thing to communicate the gift of safety to women. And it was, as I said, I've, I've, I've you know, appreciated her many times, and she's 
she's been uh, the Dharma has been her lifeline since she's gone through her difficulties and her ups and downs, but she's uh, such a beautiful, good person who wants to do good in this world. So that was the first story. Second story um, was. Uh, Eight years ago, uh, when um, after I wrote uh, Awakening Joy, I received a letter from someone, um, and uh, they said, I've never done this before, but um, I'm reaching out because the only, the only thing I can think of is to reach out and call for help and reading the book um, made me feel that maybe uh, you could help me. And first, she didn't say in the letter what had happened initially, but she said, I've been housebound. Uh, I have an autoimmune disease uh, for the last um, seven years at that time. And, um, and I don't, and I, I, my life, I can't really function so well. I, I get up and I can only uh, be up for a little while. And then I, um, but mainly I'm just staying, uh, staying in bed. And I don't know if there's ever going to be any cure. And I don't know if my life, if I can go on like this. As it turned out, she had actually had attempted to take her life um, uh, within the, a few months before she reached out to me. Um, and I said, whoa, okay. And I remember saying, uh, if I answer this letter, this is not going to be a one-off, you know, I hope you have an, hope you get it together. Um, and I wrote her back and I said, I didn't know the other circumstances, but I, I said, um, Okay, so this is what life is giving you right now. You have a choice here to um, to just give up on life or to see how can... And she was into the Dharma by then. She had done some meditating. She had done for the previous several months. Um, you can either give up on life or you can see, okay, if this is what life is giving me, how can I use this for my own awakening? And if it's possible to somehow come to some degree of uh, acceptance uh, with the situation, I said, maybe uh, you can also be an inspiration for others who, are, who go through a similar situation. And we formed, developed a relationship exchanging emails and, and all uh, for, uh, and, and she became uh, inspired and saying, oh, maybe there is a direction here. Maybe I can find meaning in this. And after some time, it was uh, it was a number of a number of months, a number of exchanges. Uh, she told me her story, which she has given me permission to share. And that was when she was fifteen. She uh, was with a friend who. Uh, took her um, uh, to her friend's boyfriend, current boyfriend's house with this uh, other guy. 
and uh, no, with two other guys. And um, while her friend was in the room with her boyfriend, two other guys that she was with um, raped her. And um, she was completely traumatized, but even more, um, she became pregnant. And about uh, at some point, uh, she uh, terminated the pregnancy with her mother, uh, um, supporting her. And about six months after this happened, her body broke down and she got this autoimmune disease, uh, which uh, she had meningitis uh, that then precipitated this disease. And then she, um, um, she ended up being in bed uh, for the next seven years. I thought, Whoa, okay. There's a good ending to this, actually. You know, now that you're, you're down in the, in the depths with it. And over the course of the next um, seven years, actually is about four years later, where she did her first retreat, and I, uh, I, I, I said, I'm going to do a retreat. You come, and you can just come to the talks. And if you can't make it to anything besides the talks, that's okay. Well, m- amazingly, she came to the retreat, was able to sit the retreat, and also when I was visiting her area, we, she and her mom and I visited, went to the scene of that incident, and did a ritual. And we did some meditating, we did some chanting, and we did a few other ritual things that she created this ritual. And then she went up to the, in front of the apartment where this scene happened by herself and did something there and came back after a while. And she sat, then this is just before sitting the retreat, she sat the retreat and this sounds like a grade B movie or a grade Z movie, but after that retreat, her body started coming back. And in fact, she's healthy. And it was like, oh my goodness, her trauma was somehow amazingly healed. She'd been carrying this trauma in her body for years, and now she's productive, in a really great relationship, um, has, is very busy doing some, certain, some uh, few different jobs uh, that she loves and supporting uh, her partner and uh, this, this other um, situation. And she's um, writing a book about her journey to empower women. So... I've seen how trauma works, can be locked in the body, and also the possibility of a healing. Okay, so now, coming back to our topic here and what our culture is going through, it seems that as long as things are kept secret and inside 
unlocked. The trauma is stuck. Not that there can always be miracle cures, but the healing comes in voicing and having support and having different modalities like somatic experiencing and other really good modalities for trauma and lots of love, but not feeling alone and having your story told. And this amazing movement that is happening right now where the stories are coming out, me too, me too, me too, is um, is something that many years from now is going to be much more important than um, what judge was on the Supreme Court looking back the importance of moments in time from abolishing slavery, the abolitionist movement in the 1820s or the the suffragette movement in the 1920s, women getting the vote. You know, abolishing slavery, could it ever happen? Women getting the vote, could that ever happen? Civil rights movement, could that ever happen? Same-sex marriage, could that ever happen? And all of those movements happened at in a journey of great suffering and courage that was willing to stand in the face of truth. And now this moment is a watershed moment in, I think, just the same way. One thing I wanted to do, I'm glad we still have plenty of time, is uh, play for you... Um, if, it, if I can get it to work, um, a bit of uh, Anna Maria Archila's um, description of her experience uh, going to Flake. She was on Democracy Now! a few days ago, and it was um, it was so compelling hearing her. I don't know if you you saw you probably saw the videos, but. There she was, and she said, I just had to make a connection. So actually, uh, rather than me saying anything, um, I'll just um, play about five minutes of this. I sure hope it works. Um, um, I, I had been in front of Senator Flake's office on Monday, and it was the first time that I had decided to tell my story of, um, as, of survival. And um, it seemed important to me to go back and try to talk to him. I did not think that we were going to find him. I did not think that we were really going to be able to have this interaction with him. Uh, But I'm an organizer, and I know that we have to fight the fight up until the very last minute. That that's how we exercise power together. And he had just issued his statement. Our reaction, the reaction that people are seeing in, in the elevator, is the reaction of Maria and I just finding out that he issued a statement and he was ready to vote for Brett Kavanaugh, even after hearing the very powerful and gut-wrenching testimony of Dr. Blasey Ford, uh, who stood in front of him and all the Republican men and the Democratic senators to share her story because she felt compelled uh, as a citizen, uh, as a, to, she felt compelled to share her story to protect her country. Um, I felt compelled to share my story, 
to join her in solidarity uh, to and also to protect my children. I am deadly afraid that Brett Kavanaugh will roll back decades of progress in our country on women's rights, on civil rights, on LGBTQ equality, and I do not want my children to have fewer rights than I have right now. So explain what happened when he went into the elevator or when you spotted him. Um, there were some reporters standing around um, the door of his office. They spotted him first and they ran behind him. Maria and I ran behind them. And you didn't know Maria before. I did not know Maria. We had just met. I didn't know her story. She, I knew we were. She was telling me that it was her first time trying to talk to uh, an elected official. So I was giving her tips, like you can share your story, tell them why you're there. Um, and um, we just ran into the elevator and put, I put our foot in the door as it was closing, and then just stayed there. And um, the adrenaline of running behind him, uh, the fact that we knew that these, we just had a few minutes, um, we used those minutes in the best way we could. We, I think, without really explicitly talking about it, we were really demanding a connection. We were really asking him to be there in that moment and feel the pain and the rage that women across the country and survivors, survivors across the country are feeling right now. And so you told him you were sexually assaulted. I, t I said to him, Senator Flake, Few just a few days ago, I stood in front of your office and for the first time shared my story of sexual assault. Um, I did it because I recognized myself, my own experience in Dr. Ford's testimony. Um, and I, uh, I want to, I want to know what, you know, what are you, what message are you sending to your children and my children? Um, do you think it's, are, are you comfortable with the idea of putting someone who's been accused of sexual assault in the Supreme Court for the next 50 years and for both of our children to grow up in that country. So you were also just publicly talking about your sexual assault and you have national cameras on you. Um, had you told your family yet? I had not told my father. Um, so immediately after that interaction, I texted him and I said, you're going to hear something that we haven't talked about. I want you to know that I am okay. Um, and the reason why I didn't tell him all for more than 30 years um, is because I didn't want him to feel pain. I didn't want him to uh, feel like he didn't protect me. Um, it's the same reason it took me many years, more than 10 years, before I told my mother. Um, and um, I, my, that fear that I had as a child was confirmed. The thing that my father texted back was, I'm so sorry, I was not able to protect you. So I know that we don't tell our stories because we are often confused, ashamed, feel responsible, and are afraid to cause pain to the people that love us. Which is one of the answers to why Christine Ford hasn't told her story for all of these decades. That's exactly right. Um, I want to say... You know, lots of people are talking about, are asking me, do you think that you changed, you know, Flake's, uh, Senator Flake's mind? And I think if it had just been Maria and I in that elevator, and if he had just heard that for the first time, the story of someone from the first time, I do not think that he would have changed his vote. I think it was the accumulative effect of thousands and thousands of people um, pouring, like going through this incredibly painful experience to try to change the culture, to bring into existence a new country, a country where we are not constantly 
ignoring, disbelieving, uh, doubting the truthfulness and the value of women, uh, of our stories, of our voices, a country where we're not um, relegated to, uh, you know, experiencing not just sexual violence, but political violence by being... <laughs> Uh, and economic violence. So, so I think all of us are doing this incredible kind of labor of love of telling our stories, and through that pain, bringing a new country into into existence. Um, and that's really what uh, what's happening right now. So, mm, that's it. Whatever. Well, as I say. This is a moment, whatever happens, and there's a, uh, there's a momentum that um, I think is uh, not only going to continue, but needs as many people, people's voices as possible. Uh, one last thing I wanted to do, and then I'll ha- I want to have y- you explore, have us explore it together. Um, I, um, I'm friends with maybe some of you have heard of Kristen Neff, who um, developed uh, this whole approach of mindful self-compassion. She, she's done a beautiful job. She's a meditator in our community. She and this guy Christopher Germer developed mindful self-compassion um, about really being kind and taking care of yourself. But in recent times... She's been, in her own um, process, thinking it's not enough to just learn to be kind with yourself. There's a kind, um, soft compassion, and then there's a fierce compassion. And this is what her next uh, book is going to be about and what um, she's focusing on in her teaching uh, and her own process these days. So she just uh, sent me a um, a piece that she wrote that I don't know if it's been published yet, and, uh, and I'm going to see about Spirit Rock publishing it, and it'll, I'm sure it'll be published in lots of places. But I wanted to read a little bit about it. Um, the title is Why Women Need Fierce Compassion. This is why women need fierce compassion. Compassion is aimed at the alleviation of suffering, that of others or ourselves, and can be ferocious as well as tender. These two poles are represented by the dialectic of yin and yang. Yin compassion is like a mother tenderly comforting her crying child. Yang compassion is like a mother bear ferociously protecting her cubs from harm. Traditional gender roles allow women to be yin, but if a woman is too young, she gets angry and fe- or fierce, people get scared and often insulting. Men are allowed to be young, but if a man shows vulnerability, he risks being kicked out of the boys' club of power. And in many ways, the Me Too movement can be seen as the collective arising of female young We are finally speaking up to protect ourselves, our sisters, our daughters, and our sons. Thank goodness. The three core components of self-compassion, according to my model, are self-kindness, common humanity, 
and mindfulness of the suffering, the, the basic practice. Oh, this is suffering. Oh, this is part of life. And may I be kind with my suffering. These manifest in yin self-compassion as loving, connected presence. Self-kindness means we soothe and comfort ourselves when in pain. Common humanity involves recognizing that suffering is part of the shared human condition. Mindfulness allows us to be with and validate our pain in an open, accepting manner. When we hold our pain with loving, connected presence, we start to transform and heal. With yang self-compassion, the three components show up as fierce, empowered truth. Self-kindness means we fiercely protect ourselves. We stand up and say, no, you cannot harm me in this way. Common humanity helps us to recognize that we are not alone. We don't need to hang our heads in shame. We can stand together with our brothers and sisters in the experience of being harmed and become empowered as a result. Me too. And mindfulness manifests as clearly seeing the truth. We no longer choose to avoid seeing or telling in order to not rock the boat. The boat needs to be rocked. When we hold our pain with fierce empowerment, truth, we can speak up and tell our stories to protect ourselves and others from being harmed. It is challenging to hold loving, connected presence together with fierce, empowered truth because their energies feel so different. But we need to do so if we're going to effectively stand up to patriarchy, to racism, and the people in power that are destroying our planet. We need both simultaneously, as advocated by great leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, or Martin Luther King Jr., So, this is the movement of not just for women, but I think for our culture, the, the strong feminine coming out. There's been enough testosterone to go for, around for a long time. And men, it will be up to men as well to find that compassionate energy that yin energy within themselves and women to find that strength and courage and fierceness within themselves. And it's really coming into wholeness. So with that in mind, I'd like to, for you to reflect on, um, on something and maybe then um, uh, connect with each other and then we'll come back as a, as a group. Just uh, first uh, invite you to go inside And first, on a Dharma level, um, what is uh, what is my relationship to this third precept? How can I embody it in practice? Whether I'm male or female. How can I create healthy boundaries and still keep my heart open 
and feel connecting. What's my relationship to this so complicated area? You might for a few moments just envision what that looks like or might look like in your life. And now, secondly, how can I hold what's happening in our culture these days, this week, these next few months, more years? How can I hold what's happening without adding to ill will and hatred but rather being a voice of fierce compassion or of strong compassion that doesn't separate but is strong and aligned with truth. How can I hold this moment in the wisest way possible. Okay, and I, you know, I some often say just turn to somebody near you, but I think for this particular uh, exercise, I would encourage uh, women to speak with women and men to speak with men and just share whatever uh, might have come up for you in these uh, in that reflection uh, for the next few minutes you can be in a group of one or uh, I mean uh, two or three or or a larger uh, group and just speak about what comes up so that you can bring your practice to this moment rather than just read the headlines and say, oh my goodness, what now? What can I do and how can it uh, inform my actions? Um, So please turn to um, a few people if you feel like it. If you want to pass, it's okay, but uh, I would encourage women to find other women and men to uh, find men either in a uh, in in pairs or triads or, or more, and you can organize yourself. And go to different parts of the room if you want. Here's a chance for you to uh, explore and be conscious. Yeah. And if you're looking for somebody, then uh, just uh, you can join a group. Those people who are listening at home, you might reflect and write something down, write your thoughts down.
Okay, just another minute or so, and then we'll come back. Okay, start uh, finishing up, and thank your partners. Let's come back together for a last couple of minutes. We only have a, a um, just a couple of minutes uh, before we end, but I'm uh, wondering we can uh, just if you can very um, succinctly uh, in a yeah succinctly say anything that comes to mind as far as how how you can uh, meet meet this moment with uh, practice orientation. Any thoughts or observations that? that come to mind. And uh, Andrew, can you do it? Uh, thanks a lot. And speak right into the mic. Okay. Well, a point that we had just closed on was... Uh, yeah. Is that better? Okay. A point that we had just closed on was, you know, I think compassion for everybody is very important. And it's very easy to feel compassion for Dr. Ford. I'm having a very hard time feeling compassion for um, Mr. Kavanaugh. Uh, and, and I'm just, I, I don't like to get so, uh, you introduced this by the, the sadness that you feel, and that's not really the emotion that I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel very angry mm-hmm. about what's happening, Yeah. and I'm, I'm just struggling with what to do with that. Yeah, and understandably, you know, there's uh, not just for him, but for others who uh, just look the other way or close their eyes in power. The way I, this is how I, do it, or try to do it. The, in, in Buddhism, the word ignorance means not seeing clearly and being blinded by your own conditioning and fears and, um, and habits of mind that are self-protective. And so, in my better moments... I see very uh, wounded, conditioned people that don't know any better. And the real villain, the way I see it, is ignorance, not uh, uh, not evil, but just ignorance and confusion. My better moments. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, uh, Andrew. We were talking about um, the feeling of, of hatred, actually, and how strongly that's coming up. Um, the, the, what was it? The, the, the feeling of hatred, hatred and how strongly that can come up. Yeah. And how much it just hurts the person that's experiencing the hatred. Yeah. Um, and we spoke a bit about this idea of, like, what do you do when... Um, I, we, so we talked about people like Martin Luther King who somehow found a way to include, 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 and never push away. Mm-hmm. Um, even people who were, um, quote that, you know, and, and this idea that I think where this was all going was that whenever, and this is something MLK seemed to allude to, whenever we try to exclude any part, whenever you try to exclude any part of the whole, mm-hmm. it feels like we've like taken off a part of ourselves. And mm-hmm. so as tempting as it is to, 
continually like us and them, us mm. and them. Mm-hmm. Um, it like does so much more harm to each of us. Yes. And so what we came to was at the end of the day, despite the pain and the anger, how do you, how do you come together? How do you find a way forward with what we all have mm. um, at our core, which is our shared vulnerability and our humanity, mm. even even in extreme in extreme mm. ignorance? Otherwise, we'll never find peace. Mm. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and it, um, we'll we'll have to close on that note. But it reminds me of this uh, quote that I love from uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who says, uh, "If only it were so simple." If only all we had to do was separate all the evil people in the world and put them, put them in a way, uh, put them far away so that they don't bother us. But the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to cut a piece, uh, cut out a piece of his own heart? So that's where the humility comes in seeing, I have this in me too. And hopefully they, whoever they are, have some degree of compassion and goodness in them too. Um, so thank you very much for that reflection. Okay, so we, we have to close uh, very briefly. It's a couple of minutes over. Um, I apologize. You might know who you want to call into the circle out of caring and compassion and wish them well. May all find peace within themselves. May all connect with the goodness inside and share their love well. May all awaken to true happiness and their true nature. And may our coming here together um, be of benefit and ripple out to um, help all beings everywhere in their journey of awakening. Thank you very much for your attention. Uh, No, it wasn't a fun, easy topic. But you hung in there and uh, hope you share your caring and wisdom with everyone in your life. Have a good week. See you next week. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.